Thanks for pressing play, and welcome to Lockhead on Marketing. Off the top, let me again say a huge thank you to our friends at Podcast Magazine, who recently named me one of the top 40 over 40 podcasters, uh, which is very, very cool. And you can subscribe to Podcast Magazine at podcastmagazine.com. And uh, there was two things shocking about being on that list. One, they put me on the list. And two, what, a, what the hell's going on? I'm over 40. <laughs> All right, today we are going to talk to a good friend of mine, Matt Johnson, founder of PursuingResults.com. And Matt and his firm were the original producers of uh, my original oddcast back in the Legends and Losers day. And uh, we've been good friends ever since. He's taught me a ton about podcasting. He's got a legendary podcast called Micro Famous. And of late, he started a new podcast called One Book That Changed My Life. And so what we did was he and I had a conversation about actually two books, Crossing the Chasm by uh, Jeffrey Moore. Absolutely a classic. If you haven't read it, it's an emergency that you do. And 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing by the OGs, Al Reese and Jack Trout. And we talked about those books from a category design, category lens perspective on his new podcast. And uh, I thought you'd enjoy the conversation over here. So uh, Matt kindly said we could take that episode and drop it for you here. So without any further ado, here is uh, Matt Johnson and I talking about Crossing the Chasm and 22 Immutable Laws. Hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheed on Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to One Book That Changed My Life. We're going to talk about two books today. This will be a first, actually, in the history of the podcast. So this guest is um, one of my good friends, and we used to work together. Uh, he's a legend, uh, both in reality and in his own mind, which is the best combination. <laughs> this is Christopher Lockhead, the host of Christopher Lockhead Follow You're Different. He also has uh, the Christopher Lockhead Marketing Podcast. He's got the Category Pirates newsletter on Substack. Um, yeah, I cannot say enough. Let, let me put it this way. At some point, we will have a guest come on who will talk about his own book, Play Bigger, as being one of the most influential marketing books on them. So this is someone that has both written uh, and is going to share a couple of books that have both had, had an impact on both of us, life-changing impact. Um, but he's an incredible writer in his own right um, and is you know, the author of multiple books. Uh, there's some, you know, like I know, Chris, you'll give credit to some of the amazing co-writers, ghostwriters, stuff like that you've had, but the ideas come from you. So you are a really deep thinker in marketing. One of the people that I respect most in terms of how you look at the world, how you think about business, how you think about marketing. So first of all, officially welcome. <laughs> Matthew, it's great to see you. You're looking handsome as always. And uh, I couldn't be more excited to uh, get this time to spend with you. I know the only thing that would make it better is if we were in your official Legends and Losers studios side by side, uh, that in person, that would have been a lot yes. of fun. Which so we have done. Against them. We and have we done. do again. As I was going to say, I remember us sitting and recording with, uh, was it Luke Rockwell? Uh, yeah, Rockhold. UFC Rockhold. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which I did. You would, you would not think to meet a, a UFC fighter in person and look like just an ordinary guy you'd see out at a bar. That was very revealing and basically cured me of any urge to have a bar fight ever. Right. Because... I mean, he looks like an athletic guy for sure. 
mm-hmm. and he's handsome as. Am I, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? <laughs> yes, you're allowed to swear. <laughs> he's handsome as fuck. <laughs> um, but to your point, you know, he came over. If I remember, wasn't he in some kind of a tracksuit or sweatsuit or something? Yeah, something like that. Just tennis shoes. Looked like he came from, you know, or was going to a gym or something, and looked like an ordinary guy. You'd see at any bar. Didn't look like he was Jack. Didn't come across as anything. And yeah, one of the best fighters in the world at that time. Scary. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, don't don't get into a fight. And, exactly. and, you know, in this town in particular, I mean, uh, martial arts is really popular uh, amongst surfers for a whole bunch of reasons. It's a great cross train and, you know, surfers tend to be uh, on the piratey side. So, uh, yeah, uh, you can get in a fight in this town any night you like. And um, it, it, it would always be a bad idea. <laughs> and for anyone listening, he's talking about Santa Cruz, but you could say the same thing for San Diego. There's a lot of, there's UFC yes. gyms here. There's a lot of people that train here. A lot of Navy SEALs around. Of, yeah. He's going to say, you're like, you don't get into a fight in a bar period in San Diego without assuming it's a Navy SEAL. So, all right. So we're going to talk about two books. We're talking about one of my favorites, the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, Reese and Trout. That's a very famous one in the marketing space. We're also talking about Crossing the Chasm um, because both of these books, um, I don't know, maybe you came across them within years of each other, but they were both hugely impactful on you. Um, and so, so take me back a little bit. What were you doing around the time when you started reading the, these types of books? Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, I'm somebody who started my first business at 18, uh, got thrown out of school, have no degrees of any kind, um, and you know, came from, let's just call it a modest background, single mom, the whole thing. And so um, when I started my first business, I literally had nothing. And entrepreneurship for me, like for many, was not a way up, but a way out. Yeah. And so given I had big dreams and aspirations and given I had no money, no relationships, no education, uh, no nothing, um, I had to learn by trying and doing and learn by seeking out mentors and coaches and, and people who would hopefully love me a little and support me a little and by reading. And um, I came upon Reese and Trout pretty early on and their books overall. And of course, 22 Immutable Laws is sort of the synthesis of all of them. So if you're only going to read one, this would be the one. Um, But if you're in marketing or you're an entrepreneur and you don't read, you know, three or four of their books, uh, you're doing yourself a disservice. Anyway, um, so I started to read them early on and and it immediately spoke to me Mm -hmm. because and I, I, I don't know what I would have said at the time, but what their work really spoke to was um, if you want to stand out, if you want to be super successful and you want to make a big difference, you got to do it by being kind of radically unique in some way. And you've got to declare yourself as such. You know, Positioning was really the first book. It was the it was their breakout book, of course, that that sort of declared that um, where you rank in the minds of the the people you care about, what today we would call super consumers, um, really matters. And sort of the ladder of value and the way they think about you and the way that all that stuff is very powerful. And the idea that you could declare a position uh, and have that position inform a new way of thinking 
all of that was absolutely fascinating to me. And I, 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 I rolled around in all of it for years and years. I mean, I haven't read their work in a long time, but mm-hmm. make no mistake, our work in category design uh, never happens without recent trout. Uh, uh, make no mistake, we consider them OGs and not just OGs of marketing and entrepreneurship, but OGs of category design. And in, in a very real way, they, amongst some others, um, are the giants that we uh, at Category Pirates today and uh, my partners and I at the time who wrote Play Bigger, uh, they are the shoulders that we're trying to stand on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, so the, so in, in the book, the 22 immutable laws of marketing, we're talking about this in the pre-show, which we could have recorded and made its own episode. It's an hour and 20 minutes long. (laughs) Uh, We can talk for a long time. I've never been celebrated for my brevity, Matthew. You have not, you have not. It's funny because one of your, one of your lockheadisms is uh, make a long story longer, which you have still not managed to master the art of making a long story less long. It's, it's, it's a really, really funny, but the, yeah, the second law is the law of category. If you can't be first in a category, then set up a new category that you can be first. in. in the example that they give of uh, Lindbergh and Earhart always stood out to me, you know, nobody remembers the second guy to cross the Atlantic. They only remember the first and the third because it was the first person to do it. And then the first woman to do it. Um, and yeah, like play bigger wouldn't exist without that, that concept. Um, and they were doing it essentially themselves too. I mean, positioning was almost was a niche down within the, the, the marketing consulting world. There's plenty of marketing consultings, you know, floating around in the eighties, uh, but nobody had positioning only recent trout. So they lived, you know, they lived it. They did live it. And interestingly enough, I remember as their books were progressing and coming out and I was continuing to read, um, it was very clear, and I forget what book it was in, Matt, but it was very clear in one of the books that they were struggling with positioning themselves, you know, because they came from an advertising marketing background, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, not a PR firm, they're definitely not an ad agency. So like, what are they? And, and one of the misses is they didn't declare a new discipline. They didn't, they they shared new thinking, but they didn't codify that thinking. And so, um, you know, one of the things we tried to do with category design was not just um, uh, introduce new thinking um, and and reintroduce some old thinking that we were trying to stand on top of, for sure. Um, but we also uh, want to introduce new frameworks, new lenses, uh, so that people can take the thinking and try to do shit with the thinking. Um, and so one of the things about uh, Recent Trout, about the other book we're going to talk about today, uh, Crossing the Chasm by Jeff Moore, um, they're great um, thinking books. Um, but the, there's a lot of sort of how to make that, how to go do that missing. And so there's a line that we try to walk in our work between, um, you know, non-obvious deep insights that are profound that can uh, really open things up for people in their businesses and in their lives. And at the same time, at least have some practicality in it. So, so that you can take it with you and start to do things with it. Yeah, like I remember reading the book Positioning and a lot of the, you know, obviously the examples are old, but it wasn't just that they were old. It was that they were from, there was a lot of product-based examples. There was a lot of electronics-based examples. And there wasn't a lot in the area of thought leadership. 
Now they did do a good job. There's there's a book. Do you remember this book by recent Trout called Horse Sense? <laughs> do you in remember some that ways? I and it's out of print, but you can still buy it. You know, the, uh, the, there's copies fl- fl- floating around on Amazon and eBay and the like. Okay. Um, in a very weird way, it actually might be their most powerful book. I I, I love it. I, so I'm, I'm thrilled to hear you say that because I love the book. And in that book, they actually talk a little bit more about how do you ride an idea, you know, as opposed to, let's say, riding a corporation, riding a cultural trend. They actually, actually have some really good insights. Um, but yeah, a lot of their other work, like for those of us that are in the entrepreneur space, especially the ones that are like coaching and consulting and speaking, like it's all ideas. We have to ride either we're building a personal brand, which I know you have very strong feelings about, or you better be able to ride an idea. And that book, Horse Sense, was one of the only ones where they actually talked about it, like positioning and, and you know, immutable laws. It doesn't really go into how do you build a business around ideas. Uh, and that's a lot of our audience on the show. That's what they're doing. So I, I, I see what you mean. Like, it, like if you just take positioning and you go, how do I apply Coke versus Pepsi to my thought leadership space? So yeah, it, ta- it takes... Um, it's a little hard for people to sometimes to make those connections. Yeah. And so the, the recent trout stuff, I think requires some real thinking mm. uh, for it to land. And then you sort of have to put together in your own mind, how you're going to go implement the thinking. And maybe that's exactly what they wanted um, because that sort of forces the practitioner to go and figure some shit out on their own. Um well, but you, you know, there's conveniently I, hire them if you're the right companies. <laughs> they they were selling the implementation, the thinking of it. Yeah. Look, that maybe that was the case for me as an 18, 22 year old kid. I didn't feel that, but maybe I wouldn't anyway. Um, so who knows what they were holding back? But hmm. I think there's another big, powerful thing in in their work that comes through, which is. Uh, and this has gotten more and more true over time. It's one of the, one of the many reasons I think personal branding is the um, uh, modern entrepreneurial herpes um, is this idea that you like that one. I do like that one. Yes. Uh, that one just came was, out of my mouth. I don't think I've ever said that. No, no, that's not, that'll be an official lock. Out. It'll be a lockheadism in about six months. Um, <laughs> okay. You gotta, you gotta briefly explain why, why is it the, the new entrepreneurial herpes? Because oh, everyone has start. one and no one, no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> that would just be VD overall, right? Everybody's got some kind of a VD. Don't, doesn't everybody have HPV or IUD or DOD uh, something or like something? That, yeah. yeah, all of that shit. So um, uh, it's just a new feature. But I, I think the big reason is that, um, first of all, there has to be something wrong in your childhood where you're uh, sort of primary motivation in your business is take photos of yourself and get attention about yourself. So there's just, oh, that's man. why we like to call it the me disease. We wrote a uh, mini book uh, on it called the me disease. Um, and what the other part of it is no one gives a shit about you. Right. They don't. Yeah. They really don't. And the degree to which they do is the degree to which some p- component of you or your story or something is informative, motivational, illustrative of something they want. Yeah. So, so, and here's the aha, and it, it goes back to the recent trout. So you and I are musicians, you, you more than me, but I make a little bit of a noise too. 
And, uh, and I can write a song, you know, I grew up in bands and all that shit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I can make a pretty good noise. There's about four notes where my voice sounds great. Um, and, and, and I can write some songs. Okay. So what's the difference between me and Bruce Springsteen? Now, what most people would say is, well, clearly talent. I mean, come on, who are you kidding? Okay. Well, that may or may not be true. Talent is 100% subjective. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Here's the real, here's the non-subjective differentiation. You ready? Fans. <laughs> I have six and Bruce has 600 million or maybe 6 billion for all I know, right? right? So fans. And so the aha here is other people make you successful. And the difference between categories and brands is categories are about customers, their problems, their opportunities, a point of view that resonates with them about how to move from a problem to a new solution, a point of view that that lands for them around a, a uh, opening the aperture of their mind and considering a new and different thing, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so if, and if you just look at our own lives and how much is in our life today that did not exist 15 years ago, okay. you know, the cloud was barely going 15 years ago. Yeah. Right. The iPhone was not here. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, the point being, human beings are open to new and different approaches and ideas if presented in compelling ways. Agreed. That's what resonates with people because a category is about something new and different for others. A brand is, hey man, yeah. look what I'm having for breakfast. I'm standing in front of a plane, man. Check it out. Ah! You know, that, that, who gives a fuck about your, your, the plane that you rented to stand in front of to make yourself look like something that is, in my opinion, actually a douchebag because nobody legendary would have a f- photo of themselves in front of a plane on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not the people that actually own the planes, no. No, no. For the most part, yeah. when, when, when was the last time you saw Elon doing that? Yeah. You know, not that he's the model for. Right. Yeah. Things, sure, sure. Say, but 80 million Twitter followers, not exactly the model of uh, uh, the uh, Hermit genius. Um, yeah. And then the other yeah. sort of sinister part of it is um, the way for that influencer or hustle porn star or personal branding thing to work is um, the the personal brand porn star has to create what you could think of as an envy gap. Yeah. Their whole thing is look at me, look at me. Don't you wish you were me? Right. Mm -hmm. That's the whole thing. That's the Kardashian business model, right? You have to wish you were them because that's what they're, they're selling a fake fantasy lifestyle. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, And so in order for, in order for their business model to work, there has to be a gap of envy. Mm-hmm. They're also, they have to be the leader and you have to be the follower. Mm-hmm. And so the more you feel like a follower and the more the envy gap there is, the more time, money, and energy you will invest in the, in the personal branding hustle porn star. Well, I don't know about you. I think 
manufacturing envy to make money is disgusting. Yeah, when you frame it that way, I think most people would agree. I don't think they realize that that's what they're doing. There's You've got people that are really skilled at it that do it. Some of them do it naturally. Some of them are smarter about it. But then you have an entire gaggle of people that think, crap, I don't really like this, but it seems like this has got to be what I what I have to do for it to work. And I think that's very, it's very sad. I think there's, I, I know a lot of those people that they are yeah. not naturally drawn. They do not want a business model based on envy. All they're trying to do is market their products and services. What they're missing is they didn't design a category. They didn't have that insight. And so they're trying to go, they go out to the market with me too products and me too personal brand and all this stuff. And just the, you know, um, and they don't realize that you don't have to create, you don't have to have a business based on envy. Your marketing doesn't have to be based on envy, but you got to have a better idea. You have to better have a better category perspective than, than the other the competition does. So anyway, yeah, that's uh, to me that for anyone that doesn't want to go down that road that has the same antipathy towards the hustle porn star stuff that you and I do, you've got to realize if you don't do that, th- this is the other path. Like going down this the the path of category design is the other path because you you have to have a better idea than the hustle porn stars. Yeah, and I think that the the sad part because I think nobody's done more damage to entrepreneurs in the last decade than hustle porn mm-hmm. uh, as a group. Um, and you know the thing that we all have to realize is um, just like you are what you eat, you are also what you think. And what, what you think is radically informed by what uh, thoughts you consume. Mm. And so who you let hang out in your brain matters. Now, look, yeah. hey, I, I like to go to In-N-Out Burger just like the next person. You, you, are, you are alone in that, but go ahead. Keep going. It, no, not so much for you. Not so much. Not so much. Oh, where, where do you like to go when you need a fast food hit? Uh, believe it or not, there's a Wendy's down the street that I, I thoroughly enjoy their cheeseburgers and fries. I skip the in and out. It's like two blocks away. <laughs> wow. Well, Hey, God bless America for choice. I know. Uh, a lot of countries don't have two, 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 uh, fast food places to pick from. But anyway, you know, so we all love to do that, but at the same time, um, you don't have to watch, um, super size me to know that if you and I ate at Wendy's or, or, or in and out or pick your spot, uh, three, four times a day for uh, an extended period of time, we would become very, very sick. Um, and so look, do some people like to watch the bachelor or some other garbage TV? I watch some garbage TV, not the bachelor, but you know, Mm -hmm. that's fine. However, if all you consume is some, you know, middle-aged carnival barker telling you how awesome you are, you just need to pump out 5,000 pieces of content a day. Um, you will make yourself stupid just like you'll make yourself sick if all you do is eat fast food. Yeah. I like the analogy to the carnival barker. All right. Uh, because our time is limited. Well, I'm going to make sure we cover crossing the chasm. So, um, so this, if I, if I remember right, and correct me if I'm wrong, did the, did this go off like a bomb in Silicon Valley? We're talking early nineties. How much of an impact did it make when it first came out? It made a pretty big impact based yeah. on my memory. You know, that was a couple of whiskeys ago, but uh, I think it, it, <laughs> And and the power. So, if I could just sum the twenty-two laws, this. If you're in marketing, first of all, you need to read both these books mm-hmm. immediately if you haven't, because uh, you actually don't get to be an entrepreneur or be in marketing if, if you um, don't read these books. It's That's that right. simple. And so, w- 
in me, for me, the contribution of Reese and Trout is, is so radical, is so extraordinary because they give you a lens to think about differentiation, because they give you a lens to go beyond traditional, my product, my brand is better than your product, your brand, and look for differentiation through what they call positioning. And they also, of course, talk about category. Um, so incredible contribution. What, what, what Moore does in Crossing the Chasm is present a framework for understanding how new markets in tech, and I, I would assert today, um, virtually every category is a tech category. And if you don't think that, I can explain it to you. But yeah. Start thinking that and see what happens in your life. But yeah. so, so I think I think the interesting thing about Crossing the Chasm is when it was written, it was written for tech companies. It was very much a Silicon Valley book. It has become much broader than that because you know Ford is a technology company today, right? So what he presents in this book explains how new market categories develop, and he has he has a standard kind of bell curve, and he introduces. Um, a non-obvious problem that anybody who's introduced a new tech category has experienced, but had no lens or way of understanding until uh, Moore has the aha and presents it in the book. Uh, oh, side note, you want to hear a little side story about this book? <laughs> Hit me. No, this is just a fun side story. Okay. So um, the agent we used for Play Bigger Mm-hmm. One of the top guys in New York, turns out, is Jeffrey Moore's agent. Oh, okay. And he told us this incredible story that Moore showed up uh, in his office with a full manuscript and said, ta-da, here's my book, let's go, kind of thing. Yeah. I'm sure he said it much differently than that. But, um, And Jim read the book and came back to him and said, chapter seven or whatever it was, the one on the chasm. That's the whole book. Mm-hmm. So uh, they worked together to write a completely different book that focused wow. on this one big idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know what the other ideas were in the original manuscript, but this was clearly a monster breakout. So if you look, if you, it's right on the cover, great cover because it shows it to you. Bell curve. And in the very beginning, a new technology category is introduced and um, it doesn't have a lot of applicability and is not interesting to most people, except, except for people who are kind of on the outer edge of whatever this new category is. Mm-hmm. And then he um, and I think he just calls them innovators or something along those lines. And then yeah, the, okay. next, the next the uh, next sort of part of the bell curve, he calls them early adopters. Mm. And then as the bell curve takes off, he calls up uh, the, the sort of next piece, the early adopters. And, and the, the third uh, and the second piece of the big part of the bell curve, uh, uh, the or no, early majority and late majority. So early adopters, the early adopters, early majority, early majority, late majority, late majority. And then uh, I think the very laggards or something like that are laggards. Yeah. Let's take a quick break from the conversation. Are you interested in running a podcast like this? Then check out our done-for-you service and grab a 15-minute podcast brainstorm call. We'll talk through your podcast idea and the business behind it so you'll know exactly how a podcast can attract ideal clients and bring you 5 to 10x return. Schedule your call today at pursuingresults.com. And now, let's jump back into the conversation. 
So he introduces that as a model. Uh, that necessarily was not a breakthrough per se. Uh, people understood these things. Mm-hmm. However, the chasm is the breakthrough. And what he asserts with you know compelling argument and, and, and anecdote and so forth uh, is that there's actually this gap in the bell curve. The bell curve is actually not one thing, it's two. Mm-hmm. And his argument is that people on the front end of the curve, the uh, innovators in, in particular, the early adopters, have a completely different mindset about adopting new things. Yeah. They are much more risk-oriented, much more innovation-oriented, some maybe more thrill-oriented. It's been a long time since I read the book, but th- these are the themes that come across. And there was a moment as he's describing this that stopped me dead in my tracks. And he said, and early adopters are the worst references for people in the early majority. Wow. Because early adopters are motivated by being first, are motivated by being innovated, are motivated by, in some cases, buying a product that might not be, they know they're buying a first generation product. And that means some things, right? You can't, like, we all own toasters. That's a 4,732 generation product. (laughs) We expect it to behave as such. But when you buy the first ever Alexa and it's wonky or whatever, you're like, okay, well, Right. Yeah. So that, that's my point. And he, he illustrates it beautifully. And what he says is when an early majority person who's looking for more quality, more reliability, a little less innovation, it, it fits into everything else. You're often in the early adopter phase, integration's really hard. And yeah. you know, even, if, even if it's a consumer product, right? Like mm-hmm. the first just, time you try to on get a little island by itself. Yeah. Yeah. The first time you tried to connect your smartphone to your car, it was a bunch of fucking hee haw. Yeah. Right. So that's you were in an early adopter phase. <laughs> for anyone listening, that is a hee haw is a lockheadism for bullshit rigmarole. Uh, yes. Yes. So and actually, as a side <laughs> note with hee haw, there's an interesting thing with languaging. So languaging is the strategic use of language to change thinking. And um, hee haw is a made up uh, term that me and my buddy Colin, who you know, made up once uh-huh. skiing. Okay. However, so it's new languaging and you just mm-hmm. explained what the new languaging is. However, sometimes with new languaging, if you put it in, in a certain context, it will land for people and they will act as if they have heard that expression in that context forever. Yeah. And so you could just try this. Okay. I was on the 405 the other day and man, oh man, there's a lot of traffic yeehaw these days. <laughs> or I had to go to the airport the other day. Holy shit. There's yeehaw at the airport these days. Everybody knows exactly what you're yes, talking about. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, the aha here is the early adopters are radically different mindset than early majority. And they, and they often make, terrible influences, influencers, um, word of mouth creators and references for the big part of the bell curve, which is where most of the market uh, category right. opportunity lives. So you have, so you have to find, if I remember right, it's like you almost have to go and find early majority people and they have, they are your better ambassadors. You got to equip them, um, 
nurture, love them. Like basically get like you have to break through into that market almost like it's a separate market. Correct. Then you can take those influencers and you can go out into the rest of the early majority and win them over. Right. And, and so the problem he frames is a lot of tech companies, and I would say all tech product or all products are tech products today, and tech companies are tech companies. Um, what happens is if they hit, that is to say, if they get the category to move in the early adopter mindset, uh, folks, they start to scale up the curve and they think, hey, ho, let's go. And they raise more venture money and they start investing in technology and they start pumping up marketing even more and this and that and the other. And then their growth sort of rides way up and then all of a sudden falls off a cliff. Yeah. And he had seen this happen over and over and over again and thought, well, what is going on here? And so he discovered, A, this chasm exists. And his theory is why it exists is this reference problem and his answer to the reference problem. And this is where he gets more practical than recent tra traditionally uh, have gotten to, in my opinion, anyway. Um, he sort of explains to you how to get across the chasm. And essentially, if I remember it right, he says, focus on verticals. Mm. And what he's really telling us all is something we should all know and all deeply remember, which is the most powerful form of marketing was, is, and always will be word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And what you're trying to do, what he, I don't think he uses these words, but what he's teaching us is how to scale word of mouth is inside an industry. Because people who are influential and important in the insurance industry know other people who are influential and important in the insurance industry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of his big suggestions to get across this chasm is to focus on uh, building momentum within uh, verticals because verticals will talk to and influence each other. And if you get a handful of the right people in insurance and a handful of people in, I don't know, discrete manufacturing, talking to each other about how awesome your new carbodingulator is, um, you can begin to build momentum. You can be, be, begin to uh, build references um, and, and people see themselves in other people who remind them of themselves doing similar work, if not the same work. And, and now you get some repeatable momentum. Uh, he has other techniques for how to get across the chasm, but that's the big one that I remember. And, and this book, um, you know, just like um, recent tryouts were just stopped me. And I think many people in the tech industry at the time in our tracks. Hmm. And uh, while I know some still read this and there's some in school that I think teach Crossing the Chasm, I run into more and more people who don't know this book. Isn't that and um, it's critical. Yeah. Um, real quick before we wrap up, any specific instances where you can think of in your business career where you're like, oh, this is what this is what I'm doing. I'm totally doing. I'm, I'm totally using crossing the chasm or immutable laws or anything like that, where you can pin it down to a specific instance. Oh, for sure. Um, so um, my writing partner Eddie Yoon um, and Nicholas Cole, but Eddie Yoon in, in specific, he wrote a powerful book called Super Consumers, which is really all about how to leverage the top most enthusiastic, often the top buying and using people in any market category, not just your customers, but in the market category overall, um, how understanding them, uh, collaborating with them, leveraging them um, is, is the pathway to growth for a whole bunch of reasons. And a, one of those is word of mouth. And so 
people often say, well, um, category design is too expensive. Here's what they don't understand. In B2B categories, if you get rough and tough the right on maybe low-end 500 people and on high-end 10,000 people, engaging with your point of view, beginning to consider a new and different way of thinking about a problem and or opportunity, um, and then begin to talk about it, and then maybe begin to buy from you and try it, Mm -hmm. and then maybe begin to blog about it and tweet about it and LinkedIn about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the category can tip with a relatively small number of people mm-hmm. on the B to C side. It turns out the same thing's true by not just focusing on, uh, super consumers, but what Eddie calls super geos. So, uh, there's a, a B2B tech company right now, um, that is, we're working with that is growing at almost unprecedented rates for a B2B or for a B2C company, mm-hmm. particularly one that sells hardware primarily. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we've done, uh, and when I say we, I mean Eddie, <laughs> okay. very deep category science work. Uh-huh. And we have figured out not just who the super consumer is, but of course, where they live. And then a whole set of characteristics about those people. Okay, that gives us a lens to, as we are creating the new category for this legendary company, it's also, in my opinion, it's a world-changing product. It's going to do, it's, it's doing a tremendous amount for our environment. Anyway, um, what we're doing is, in this case, in part by deep uh, category science data analysis, Figuring out how to scale the category. Um, and what we're doing is in a very real way, although we don't talk about it in that way now, we're very, in a very real way, helping uh, to figure out how we scale past the chasm. Got it. Because these guys are growing at an unbelievable rate. There's no takedown in growth. The growth rate is actually accelerating. So you've got this exciting thing where the um, the absolute numbers are getting bigger, and the growth rate is getting mm-hmm. bigger at the same time. Mm-hmm. And and just and it's just like Jeff talks about in the book. And we know intuitively now. So so the interesting thing about the framework of crossing the chasm, it went from a non-obvious insight that we all had to get educated to to becoming obvious to the point now where I think many of us in the tech entrepreneur marketing world, certainly category designers, um, we're just unconsciously competent. It just sits there and mm-hmm. we don't even know that's necessarily what we're doing. Uh, yeah. Just like how you know how to drive a car, because right. what we're doing in this, in this case mm-hmm. with the consumer company I'm talking about okay. is we are figuring out how to, in a geo based way, get their super consumers talking so that we go from the early adopter super consumers into what more would call the early majority. It's exactly what we're doing, even though today we don't think of it as such, but we've combined category design with uh, a legendary growth strategy called focus on super consumers. And in this case, 
sort of lurking in the back of our minds because we all have the framework of crossing the chasm. It's a mm -hmm. given. Mm -hmm. um, we know we're setting up to not fall into this hole. Right. Yeah, because you know the gap is coming. Like everything now looks amazing. The growth rate's accelerating, blah, blah, blah. But you're already not counting on that continuing, which would be the naive Correct. way to look at it. Correct. Because right now, um, the uh, demographic, psychographic makeup, uh, whatever dimension you want to talk about of the super consumer. And it turns out in this case, these super consumers are highly weighted to certain geographies. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're able to focus, like even at the very brass tax level, we're able to focus targeted Facebook ads, not just to the sort of uh, the avatar profile of the super consumer, but also the geo. Mm -hmm. And we're configuring our category marketing strategy in a way to purposely drive word of mouth amongst supers in those geos. Right. And so the net effect of doing it this way, I, I said it was, you know, 500 to maybe 10,000 on the B2B side that you need to have an aha around your new category to get it to really tip and, and in, in the vernacular of Jeff cross that chasm. Mm -hmm. When you break B2B down and you have the crossing the chasm lens, you have the super geo lens and you have the category design lens and you bring them all together. What you realize is if in your geos with the highest concentration of supers, you can get to a certain level of penetration, you'll get the entire area. And Eddie has data on this over and over and over mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. uh, consumer clothing companies know this. They know that when shoe companies, they know that when a certain percentage of their super consumer target uh, individual is wearing their shoe, they no longer need to spend a dime marketing in that geo. Mm. Okay. And so my point is on the consumer side, if you have this lens or this combination of lenses, really, mm. you realize that, you know what? In a focused super geo against a focused set of um, super consumer targets who are most likely to drive word of mouth, you might need to spend money marketing to 10,000 people in that geo at most mm -hmm. to feel like you're ubiquitous and right. to get that geo amongst that group of individuals, the supers to tip. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? As that's happening in one geo, in the case of the company that we're talking about, there are, and we're down at the zip code level, Mm -hmm. uh, in 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 core in in adjacent zip codes, we've done the analysis, and no surprise, many of our super targets are there too. So, so my point is, throttle in real hard on a handful of, in this case, uh, zip codes as a super tight demographic that you can target with digital marketing. Mm -hmm. Get that word of mouth going. Get to a level of penetration, and based on data analysis that is indicative of uh, what, what looks, what, what it takes to get something to tip. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in this case, Eddie had done a, a bunch of work with uh, iRobot, the makers of the Roomba. Okay. So he came into it with a set of data understanding around at what level of 
population density penetration in a certain hyper-focused super geo um, did iRobot need to get to for the Roomba to tip or for the iRobot to tip? Mm-hmm. And then they could completely change their marketing, lower their spend in those zips and go to an adjacent and do it over again. Mm-hmm. And so even though over time in aggregate, if you're in the B2C space, you are absolutely um, got to get to way more people than you've got to get to typically in the B2B space. When you understand, in this example, crossing the chasm meets category design, meets super consumers, meets super geos, all of a sudden, the mountain doesn't look very hot. Yeah. And once you get a repeatable model for this... Mm-hmm. You just do it over and over again. Correct. And then, and then, then your growth is a function of how much you invest. Yeah. Yeah. Because you literally know, you get it to such a science, the instrumentation of the category science is so tight that you can literally say, Jesus, you know, if we increased our spend by 25%, this would happen. Mm -hmm. And then when you know, when you're hitting that tipping point, you go, there's almost no value in increasing spend. We need to start de-throttling spend in this super geo and throttle it up in that one because we're getting to a level of penetration where the word of mouth will make it happen on its own. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really interesting application of all of that. And it's interesting that now it's become unconscious competence, which is, uh, yeah, if, I mean, from, uh, from an author's perspective, it's hard to argue that that would be one of the greatest achievements of, of, a, of a writing career of, as a book author to have your ideas so absorbed that they're now no longer non-obvious. They become part of the lexicon of how people think. I mean, that's, to me, that's making lasting change in an industry. Yes. And it, <clears throat> excuse me, it's interesting you say that because um, I often think about these kinds of individuals. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Moby was on Follow Your Different a while ago, the musician. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he ended up becoming very good friends with his idol, David Bowie. Mm-hmm. And we ended up talking about David Bowie. And he was sharing with me his experiences and Bowie hanging out at his apartment in New York and doing this with Bowie and doing, you know, just unbelievable shit. Right. Um, And and when he was a kid, buying his first Bowie record, you know, a whole thing. And somewhere in the conversation about Bowie, I asked Moby, I said, did David Bowie know he was David Bowie? And Moby said, yeah. He absolutely knew he was David Bowie. And I said, did being David Bowie make Bowie happy? And he said, yeah, it really did. Wow. And so, you know, I, I've never met um, uh, Reese and Trout. I've met uh, Jeff Moore, but far from known. Mm-hmm. The other part of it for them as the contributors of what I would describe as legendary net new intellectual capital, which to your point in many domains of business now are just unconsciously competent. And and many people don't know where these things came from anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I I agree with you that it's an incredible, uh, incredible contribution when your work becomes unconsciously competent for people. And my hope for the authors of the, these two books is that, they are very gratified that it makes them happy being 
the people that they are and having made the contributions that they've made. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah, it's interesting to know about about David Bowie because you you hope that for those people that become that they don't become such a character caricature of themselves that they end up making themselves unhappy in the pursuit of just being what the public perceives them to be. Um, yeah, and I hope the same thing for the authors of these books. Um, that's a good way to put it. You know, there's another book maybe we should talk about some other time, The Experience Economy. Um, another one of the most important books of the last 25 years, in my opinion. Uh, must, must read. If you haven't read Experience Economy, you don't get to play either. Um, Man, and uh, got to get my shit um, together. You haven't read The Experience Economy? I don't think I have. If I have, it's been years. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't recall the, the big idea from the book. So yeah, I need to go back and read it. Oh, yeah. And it's been updated and so forth. And it's written by two guys, um, uh, Pine and Gilmore. And I don't know Gilmore, but I do know Pine, Joe Pine. And he's been on my podcast a number of times. And and I would say we're business friendly, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and when when they wrote the experience economy, the idea of it, what an experience was, was not anything that anybody talked about. I know because I was there. Yeah. They changed the software industry because we used to call the part that the customer interacts with the user interface. (laughs) And the user interface was the last thing anybody thought about. And the shitty engineers worked on that. And the cool engineers worked on, um, you know, the the workflows and the code and and the architecture and the carbodingulation and the deconfibrillation and all that shit. And then the morons did at the last minute the user interface. And, um, and, um, Pine and Gilmore said, well, no, the experience people have of your company, of your product, um, of your service is the service. Mm. And there are now experience designers, right? Uh, if you think about Disney World as a simple example, right? That is a highly uh, orchestrated and engineered and designed experience. They want you to feel a certain way, yeah. and and so the idea in that book is that if you present a radically differentiated, high value experience, you're going to achieve a level of differentiation um, that's extraordinary. And Starbucks became one of the very early examples of this um, because they the experience that they created was radically different than a typical fast food experience where they didn't think about the experience as an experience because thinking about an experience as this whole new way of uh, delivering what you deliver was not a category of thinking. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story longer. I know Joe's happy. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he loves being, you know, one of the godfathers of the experienced economy. Yeah. Um, and he's very humble about it. He's a very modest guy. Um, and at the same time, you know, he knows that at least he sparked uh, or was a material part of sparking a conversation that changed um, the future, in my opinion, for uh, in, in an exponential way. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Where would you like to send people to? We mentioned the podcast. We talked briefly about the fact that you guys are on Substack, but what's the what's the primary way that you want people to get connected, get into your world? Uh, just lockhead.com. Everything hangs off of there. Two H's, no K. <laughs> lockhead.com. All right. 
Hey, this is a fun. I could do this for about another five hours, but uh, <laughs> yeah, my, my camera has died. I just switched cameras. I'm out of water. I'm out of coffee. Everything is gone. Everything's depleted. Um, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it, man. It's great to have this time with you. Well, there he is, the legendary Matt Johnson. It was great to catch up with him. Love that conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Why don't you share this podcast with somebody that you think would enjoy it? All right, we would like to thank, we would like to thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out. Again, Matt Johnson, his book is called, his, his podcast is called One Book That Changed My Life. Check it out and subscribe. My friends at Clary are the leaders in revenue, collaboration, and governance. Clary's approach to RevCG helps you prevent revenue leak. And uh, most companies leak 14.9% revenue. That is revenue that you've earned, but that slips through the cracks. Check out Clary, C-L-A-R-I.com, and check out the revenue platform because every drop of revenue matters. Also want to thank you so much for making Category Pirate's new book, Snow Leopard, how legendary writers create a category of one. Number one, it's been number one in marketing, publishing, writing, uh, pretty much every day since it came out on the Amazon uh, new bestseller list. So thank you so much. And even if you're not a writer, if you're a marketer, a content creator, and especially if you're a category designer, the ideas in Snow Leopard will help you understand why certain ideas tip and why they don't based on real category science research. Check out Snow Leopard on Amazon.com. I got to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Please uh, don't forget to consult your lawyer, doctor, shaman, mystic, yoga instructor, and category designer before you act on any of today's information. You need to be aware that the creators of this podcast were more than likely consuming many libations, and everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. Please, when you're done, uh, be kind and rewind the tape. Uh, listen to uh, Johnny Cash. Dolly Parton was right. Remember, marketing's job is to produce revenue. Don't be confused. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. And if you want to do legendary podcasting, check out Jason.FYI. He's opened a brand new podcast studio in the L.A. area. That's Jason. Dot FYI, Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. The Bobus Brothers, uh, RJ and EX, do our web de- development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. And oh, by the way, uh, your spouse texted. It's okay. Go ahead and pick up a copy of uh, Snow Leopard. You've probably done stupider things with 30 bucks. All right, the thought I'll leave you with comes from Lemony Stick, Snicket. Lemony Snicket. <laughs> That's a fun word to say. Who said, never trust anyone who has not brought a book with them. 